Hello and welcome to the MIT Press Podcast. This month on the podcast, we'll be hosting a series of discussions produced in collaboration with Repeater Books. The episode you're currently listening to is the second in that series and features a discussion between the author, publisher and co-founder of Repeater Books, Tarek Goddard, and Victoria Nelson, whose forthcoming book, Neighbour George, publishes with Strange Attractor in November. Tarek Goddard is the author of six novels, including Homage to a Firing Squad and Nature and Necessity. He's also one of the co-founders of Repeater Books. And in February, Repeater published The Repeater Book of the Occult, edited by Tarek and the philosopher Eugene Thacker. The book includes a collection of horror stories selected by some of their authors. Victoria Nelson is an author of fiction, criticism and memoir. Her books include Gothica and The Secret Life of Puppets, two collections of short stories, and a memoir. She also edited the Robert Eichmann collection, Compulsory Games, for the New York Review of Books. In November, Strange Tractor will be publishing her first novel, Neighbour George, in which a young woman and a mysterious man meet in the haunted landscape of Northern California. Today, Tarek and Victoria will be discussing the occult, horror, and the material and spiritual dimensions of the supernatural. So, with introductions done, I'll hand over to them. So, Tariq, I have looked at and read the repeater book of the occult with great interest as a as a horror and ghost story aficionado and sometime practitioner. So I, I'm very curious, actually, how you did come to put this book together. Some of the stories are very familiar, others aren't. And I wonder what your, you know, kind of framework was overall for putting this together. Um, I put it together with a philosopher, Eugene Thacker. We had a number of conversations a few years ago about our favorite horror stories. And one of the things I told him about the experience of writing just a single horror novel, my other um, novels are straight fiction, I suppose, is that I was really surprised when I'd finished it to find that many of the critics and a lot of the feedback I got, especially from the serious press um, or the seriously literary press, conceived it as something of an elaborate joke. Um, you know, well-executed, well-oiled, decently manipulated, but not fundamentally serious in the way that my previous three novels have been. They also viewed it as a grand analogy, which in some senses it could be and could work as, but an analogy for the system, capitalism, demonic possession, being people's possession from the goods that own them, that kind of thing. And whilst I understand that the book could be read in that way and I had left it open to that sort of interpretation, it was actually about demons and the devil and the irreducibility of evil and all the different things that I said it was in the book. 
and that the literal interpretation of um, a literal work of appalling horror that had made me lose sleep for two years, you know, in the, in the writing of it, was something that embarrassed a lot of my friends and colleagues and other writers and certainly critics, not just in um, literature in the whole, but even in the horror area when I would meet other horror writers. Eugene, who had read it literally, even though, you know, he's a nihilist and a materialist, but for him it seemed self-evident that it was about what it was about, thought that it would be a good idea if we brought together some horror stories that we loved and those other repeater writers, repeaters, the publishing imprint I run, loved, that we either thought were neglected or we thought had suffered from what we see as the prevailing emphasis on horror, either as a superior form of entertainment, where you deliberately scare yourself from something you know is make-believe because you don't find life sufficiently interesting without inventions and demons and you know things that you want to pretend are under your bed. Or horror is a great metaphor for discussing something more serious. And the kind of stories we were going to choose were either ones where horror was literal, it just is exactly as the author says it is, that he believes or she believes in all the terrible things that, in the literal existence, all the terrible things being listed, or horror that draws your attention to human behavior that isn't explainable in other terms other than the supernatural, or Horror is introducing another dimension that crosses our path in human reality. And we wanted those sorts of neglected stories and that neglected view of horror and by association the supernatural to be the, the sort of unifying, unifying theme of everything that was included in, in this collection. So that, that, that was where, where and how we kicked off. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a rather verbose explanation, but... No, no. Uh, Welcome to the world of the materialist, quote-unquote, serious literary writers and the supernaturalist world of what's pretty much ghettoized as popular. I've butted heads with this uh, so many times. And there really is a tremendously strong materialist bias in proper, what's considered proper literary endeavors, the novels themselves and the critics. And it ignores this vast world, which has increased exponentially, I think, in the last 30 years or so, of younger readers who only read supernatural science fiction, fantasy, and so on, and feel very comfortable in those worlds. And don't care at all about what, you know, oh, well, actually they do. They get very upset <laughs> if you don't acknowledge that their work is equally important. The work they read is equally important. Myself, I'm an unabashed supernaturalist. I do believe that there are dimensions beyond the material dimensions that express themselves in all kinds of ways. And I see also Moving into the 21st century, you know, an enormous group of readers who feel the same way, 
the reason they go to popular literature is because they don't find it in, you know, the rarefied novels of, you know, social malaise and, you know, young people seeking their identity and on, you know, on and on and on. And it's, it's interesting how these two worlds don't collide and also don't always connect. I found when I, I did a collection of the uh, stories of Robert Aikman uh, a couple of years ago that uh, I got a lot of outrage from all the Aikman fans because I said, you have to go downstairs in the bookshop to the horror section to find this writer who's an equal of Henry James. And by the way, Henry James wrote <laughs> much the same kind of story as he did. And so they, they were, and I said something about ghettoized, you know, in the horror section and this enormous outrage from the, from the Aikman fans. So you get it in both directions, basically. But that was a very careful provocation because Aikman is a beautiful writer and a great stylist. He certainly could never have written anything like one of James's long novels. But within the short story, he must have at least half a dozen of his tales, probably more than that, maybe as many as 20, 24, that are the equal to the turn of the screw. And I think Aikman's artistry, the fact that he is so careful and bold and clear but oblique a writer, means that his fans, and it was a brilliant expression you used, unabashed supernaturalist, I mean, it sounds like it's the beginning of the movie and we're laying down the gauntlet and, you know, we're going to go into the house and see what's inside. But I think because most of the readers of serious literature regard the work of their favourite authors as art, whereas the horror ghetto, the downstairs area, is the place of guilty pleasures and a sort of um, the kind of pleasurable crassness that... uh, actually conflate a proper uh, writer, a literary figure, with the horror genre is, in the eyes of lots of people, to rob them of their seriousness and their literary brilliance. It's like it's taking away their accolades. It's just prejudice. Yeah, except I also endorse uh, G.K. Chesterton's famous distinction between popular story, you know, he wrote this great essay called In Defense of Penny Dreadful, saying that that kind of story is different than what we think of as art, literary novels, and so on. Uh, But it's equally necessary. It's absolutely equally necessary. And I, I further feel that there is a very different effect when you read, uh, a Chesterton type of story and you read something like a Kafka story because a popular story is invested in having order restored to the world. You know, it's, it's, it's upbeat. It's, it, it comes in a way, the structure comes from folk tale where people go through all kinds of dreadful things, but it all comes out okay at the end. Now, in horror, particularly, that is not always the case. Horror has a has a d- very dark dimension to it. But overall, uh, it's it's you you have a different effect. And uh, I always go back to Auden's uh, statement that the difference between fantasy literature and the literature literature is 
the avoidance of suffering versus identification with suffering. So, for instance, you read Kafka's Metamorphosis, and you go through this whole experience of the hero, Gregor Samsa, turning into a giant insect. And by the end of that story, you are not interested in going out and reading more stories about about people turning into insects, you've had the full emotional experience. Whereas if you went to the drive-in and you saw attack of the flying insects, you would want to go on and then see another one because the, the, the very structure, the strong formulaic structure of all of these stories, including horror stories, is such that it makes you want to go and experience again at a different level of identification than you do with serious literature. So, and then the other thing I would add to that about horror stories, the reason I wrote the critical works I did was that I wanted to know why supernatural stories in our culture are always about evil creatures. Why not about good creatures? And it really goes back to our Anglo-American heritage of the Reformation, so that anything supernatural became the purview of the devil. And I don't know if you've ever read Keith Thomas's great book, Magic, Religion and the Decline of Magic, but he talks about this shift in England from the Catholic days into the Protestant uh, Reformation days. And he mentions these two English gentlemen walking down a little trail in the countryside, and they see something they can't explain, and they talk about it, and they say, well, was that an apparition? And they decide to be on the safe side. It was something that the devil sent. So we've had devil-inflected horror stories ever since, until now, when these young people who are so hungry for the supernatural and also a kind of religious or spiritual experience have started turning their their monsters into heroes. You know, in like in Twilight, you get vampires and, you know, Bram Stoker invented the whatever you want to call it, that a vampire exposed to sunlight turns to dust. The Twilight vampires exude this bright, sparkling aura, which is nothing but the Tibetan Buddhist um, rainbow aura of the, of the subtle body. You know, there are these obvious religious parallels. So there's a big change going on now in horror and supernatural literature that I watch with great interest. I think that's really interesting that you, you know, you're pointing to that conflation between horror and the supernatural. And that a ghost is necessarily going to be something unpleasant. And that an encounter with the supernatural is necessarily going to be dark, you know, to, to frighten you and is something to be avoided. And I wonder if that doesn't go back to this prejudice we're talking about against supernatural writing, that although it attacks horror and the horror novel, it's really a prejudice against transcendentalism, religious feeling, religious sensibilities, and the supernatural suggesting that a materialist account of reality is fundamentally lacking in some way. Because in so many of the horror stories that we were looking at to put into this compendium, horror is what is unexplainable. And what is unexplainable 
is some ghastly assault on our existing natural order that with the help of, um, I don't know, prayer, priests, the uh, appropriate su superstitious observation, you will be able to protect yourself from. But it, it definitely is inexplicable. And in its inexplicableness, it shows its innate wrongness. And I think that the, the prejudice towards rationalism, secular reason, if you like, um, logical positivism, scientific reductionism, the idea that all the answers to the mysteries of the universe can be contained in um, a proper uh, X-ray of your brain, um, neural reductionism, eliminative reductionism, all these things are saying what you can't explain is either something that you will eventually explain or absolute bullshit that isn't worth talking about. And if you're feeble-minded enough to think it's something else, we pity you. It shows a, a, a level of a intellectual shallowness and ridiculous credulity, childishness. So it's unsurprising that any ghostly manifestation must always be that thing that is to be denied or exercised or driven out of the picture. I think it's consistent with the rationalist prejudice, which becomes interchangeable with grown-up common sense. And in lots of the actual stories, the hero tends to be a man of science or a doctor or a person of great learning that, you know, rather foolishly, maybe on holiday in Egypt, began experimenting with um, pagan texts and staying up too late and, you know, maybe took some mushrooms as well. And now look at his life collapsing. And the suggestion is that, of course, this is a psychological breakdown that is completely naturalistic and explainable in terms of he should have gone to bed an hour earlier and not eaten so much cheese and not, you know, the Mistopheles or whatever ridiculous thing he thinks he's seen at the end of his day. Yes, so, you know, this is the great 20th century trope, which you see in all the movies, which is, is this real or am I crazy? So yeah. the main character has a, an unexplainable experience that he or she interprets as supernatural and uh, everyone else says, oh, you're crazy. And Cabinet Dr. Caligari was the, the sort of set the mode for this with a man who tells this fantastic story. And then at the very end, you find out he's an inmate of an insane asylum. The interesting thing about the movies, though, is that they almost always at the end show that the per person was right. <laughs> There was a supernatural thing happening. They weren't crazy, uh, et cetera, et cetera. The other part about that that's interesting is the fact that in all of these movies, which basically come out of either what I would call a Judeo-Protestant mindset, always use the priest and the crucifix and the holy water. <laughs> they don't have any faith in, you know, some preacher in the Midwest in a leisure suit trying to exorcise the demon. It's, that's just not going to work. In Neighbor George, I'll, I'll just say a word about it. I was writing a story. It was really before I... Writing that story helped me get to a lot of these ideas. It helped me. It motivated me, really, to start writing critically about the supernatural. But I wanted to show a young woman who had a lot of bad stuff inside her. And this bad stuff attracts some bad energy from out there. 
and this bad energy comes in and tries to possess her. And the crux of the story is her finally being forced to look at what's inside her and acknowledge what happened and what she did. And by doing that, is able to free herself of the bad energy. But all the while, she's telling us, she said, you know, this is not in my mind. This person, this thing is out there. Everybody else sees him. It's not my imagination. He is coming at me from the outside. That's the pre-modern view of the universe, you know, that there are forces out there that come in and invade us, including emotions. You know, that's why allegory was so popular, to have these objectified forces coming at you uh, in one form or another. Once you get to the 20th century, it flips, and it's all projection from inside us. Whatever, you know, unexplainable out there is happening, it's a projection from the inside. But a medieval person would say, no, we are God's projections. Um, I'm growing a sympathy with that view. If it doesn't mean that I'll never be taken seriously again amongst any of my materialist friends. You've already given me half a spoiler there, Victoria, because I'm 100 pages into Neighbor George. So well, no worries. I'm, go- I'm, going, I'm going to go the whole hog and let you ruin <laughs> okay. the whole thing for me. I mean, I'll still be able to enjoy reading it. I'm halfway through, and one of the things that struck me is that it seems at the moment that you're keeping your powder very dry in terms of laying on, if you like, the horror and the atmosphere that we usually associate with a frightening story that will evoke the supernatural. And if you're looking as a reader for any of the obvious clues or hints or early signifiers that this is going to be a horror story, they're not really there. I mean, you know, there's, there's stuff in the ether. You talk about this being the sort of place with a lot of latent psychic energy where people might lie on the road and try and kill themselves. But there isn't anything that is specific to the horror code yet. And I'm guessing that George then doesn't exist. This person that you've described brilliantly, realistically, credibly, three-dimensionally, is actually a figure she's projecting onto the outside. No. No, not Um, at all. And, you know, you've pinpointed the great dilemma of that book and the fact... If I didn't know it was horror because of this conversation coming, and being prepared for it, I wouldn't 132 pages in, despite someone, you know, looking like they've been killed. I wouldn't think this was horror. It's a very sharp left turn, and that, in my experience, has been the point where literary readers quit reading and horror readers finally wake up. And I struggled and struggled and struggled to meld the two, you know, the gap between those two things. the tagline for this for the novel is "Turn of the Screw Meets the Birds." <laughs> it's Turn of the Screw in the beginning, and then it turns into the birds. And one half of the readership, up to now, uh, un- before it has been published, turns off, becomes horror, uh, and the other half of the readership lights up when it becomes horror. Finally, I just decided, you know, this is me. <laughs> This is this is the split in my own psyche, 
and uh, my hope is that people will extend enough goodwill to carry them through to see how the two halves meet up at the end and reconcile themselves. I mean, one of the things I've always found most effective and beguiling about a film or a book that eventually shows its hand as horror is for me to really not know what it is I'm watching at the moment. So, you know, if I think of um, famous examples, um, Rosemary's Baby or The Exorcist, both of which are really good books as well as films. With Rosemary's Baby, you really can for a while think you're reading about a couple that are just looking to buy an apartment that they can't afford whilst he's trying to struggle and break into acting and she's trying to get pregnant. And it's almost a superior soap opera. Or The Exorcist, where, you know, for the first 10, 15 minutes until the Mike Oldfield soundtrack comes and you see the, the leaves being picked up by a slightly ominous wind, you, you, you know, you may think you are watching a film about an actress and a single mother trying to look after her daughter and also pursue her creative ambitions. So when the horror hits you, it does so with the sort of persuasive power of something actually real rather than just a stylistic horror convention because you've already tuned into something that you are reading or watching literally and believing in the reality of and in the embodied concrete human existence of. So I, I think, you know, I, I look forward to the bit in your novel where you drop the bomb because I think you will have softened up doubters to a point where they are ready to take you at face value and hear what you have to say next. And if you've been able to hold someone that's just reading it for fear that long, then you're going to hold them to the end um, because, you, you know, you haven't given anything away cheaply earlier. Thank you. Thank you for the encouraging words. Of course, there are some clues, Tariq. Once you know, you can see they were planted, but uh, I, I uh, concur that they're not, they're not all that obvious in the beginning. And, and then the second, the second story, there's a story that accompanies Neighbor George called Linus Venus, which I had written before writing Neighbor George. And they are meant to be kind of complementary supernatural entities. One is male, the other is female, a grotesquely overweight homeless woman who lives on an old school bus in the mesa of this strange little town called Bolinas, uh, where the hero eventually gets a sentimental edu erotic education. And so I did, I, I meant them to be kind of balancing forces and very much, in a way, emanating from that very special part of the world that I'm so fond of, which is just north of the Golden Gate Bridge. San Francisco, just north of there, in the parklands and headlands and coast of Marin uh, County. Well, I'm sat in Wilshire looking up at the moment at dusk over a place called Gallows Hill. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's a wet dream for any Hammer horror-influenced director. I'm just thinking of the M.R. James story. M.R. James is actually my all-time favorite ghost story writers, with one exception, uh, the greatest ghost story, in my opinion, uh, I have yet to, I have read is Elizabeth Jane Howard's Three Miles Up. Do you know that story? 
I know um I know the story that she wrote with Robert Aikman, whether on the barge. Uh, well, that is that is they they didn't collaborate per se. They issued a book of stories called "We Are the Dark." Yeah, and that's her story. Her story is about two young men who decide to go uh, on the barge uh, into the take a, a holiday that goes dreadfully wrong. It's absolutely terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. And that final image of them just entering into the sea. Oh, um, God. I mean, I think the three best things she ever wrote were at the beginning of her life in that short story collection. And then mm-hmm. the, no, I mean, the story, the girl that comes on board the boat and the way that she um, draws them both into her orbit. And, you know, they, they just keep finding these canals and there's fog all over the place. And, yeah, and, 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 yeah, and then she's, Her name is, I think, Sherry or Sherry, but she's, she's Caron, the... Uh, the guide to cross to the, the underworld into the underworld. That's yeah. No, that that's definitely where they were going. It was the hearts of darkness off the corner, off the Norfolk coast. But um, you know, when you said Gallows Hill, I immediately yeah. thought of the M.R. James story. Remember, it's the man who looks through the uh, binocul, the special binoculars of the hill, and he sees he sees terrible things, and it turns out the glass in those lenses was somehow constructed from the something or other of executed man. I'm a little hazy on the details, but <laughs> there are a lot of other hills that in James that aren't that aren't a good idea to walk on. Yeah, it takes absolutely no imagination at all to see things as MR James does living here. I thought it was interesting that you said that your heroine in Neighbor George becomes um if you like, vulnerable or is in danger because of this energy she's carrying around in her and this awareness, other bad energy or evil or whatever you want to call it, that carrying this energy that queens her with. I found that the experience of writing The Picture of Contented New Wealth, which was a horror novel I wrote uh, 11 years ago, was so different from anything else that I had written in as much as the actual act of writing it made me, it seemed, hypersensitive to things that I normally would have seen past or seen through or just not been aware of. And some of those were things that I could name, that is just the presence of malevolence in the world and the news and people's lives. Other things, you know, like waking up because something had just shaken me, though it hadn't, or I'd shaken myself or something had compelled me to. Oh, or I'm not being able to sleep because I thought I had electricity running through me. It seemed to me that writing about the irreducibility of evil and demonic possession meant that I was generally more aware of something massively discomforting in life and in the ether anyway. And that if I wasn't aware of these things, these things could still exist and I'd be safe. But what actually put me in harm's way was my increased awareness, my tuning in, my sense of the nearness of its dimensionality to where I would normally act out my whole life. I think there really is something to this, which is if you are prepared either to just look the other way or genuinely and sincerely not believe, you are also the person that will go, well, I've never seen anything, you know, that 
scares me. I've never seen any ghosts. I've never felt anything odd when I walked into that house. And you are a self-reinforcing principle because you never will, because you are not open to them. Whereas perversely, the more aware you are of these things means that you, the greater danger you're in actually of something going wrong too. But that it might be worth it because, you know, it, it gives you a more complete and rich understanding of, of life. Well, I imputed a different trajectory to Debbie, to these, that's the pseudonymous heroine. It's my own belief that walling yourself off and being unaware leaves you much more vulnerable. That's why she is vulnerable, because she hasn't acknowledged things that happened in the past that she should have faced up to, and the result has been her life is completely frozen solid. And it's only when you tune in to that deeper level that you see some of the forces that are working in this world. And the only way you're ever going to resolve them or rise on top of them is by taking that very direct look. There's one point uh, in the story, I don't know if you've gotten there yet, where she, this poetry conference, people have come to her house when she's in massive disarray, and she's frantically asking this poet for help against what she's, you know, this possession she's trying to fight off. And he's, he's just very dismissive, you know, and, oh, dear, yes, oh, well, there are these lovely old English charms. And, you know, he's not taking her seriously at all. And so she gives up on him, and as he walks out of the room, she notices how his body is kind of hunched over, and she realizes that he has his own George that he's completely unaware of, but that he is totally enthralled to. So it's the knowledge and the awareness that can free you from this sort of thing. I don't operate on the level of exorcism and no, no. you know demons and and that sort of thing. I tend to see it much more energetically. Not nor do I on a daily basis. I wouldn't want to give you a misrepresentation of life in, in my house. No, no, I didn't think you were either. But I, I just uh, what I'm saying is that an acknowledgement and awareness of uh, dimensions outside the three and four. And five, that scientism, uh, you know, acknowledges is, is not a bad idea. No, I think if someone were listening to us and was saying, well, look, I just want to convert everything you've said into something intelligible to me, and that is a knowledge of the unconscious, our true motivations, there must be a secular way of understanding everything that you're saying that I can be on board with. So I, I, I think there is something wholesome and reassuring about knowing that if you look to the bottom of things properly, you will be better off than if you are just repressing and, and putting them away. That's the way you develop an unconscious stoop, the way your Georges hang on your shoulder and you, you become deformed. You know, in the same way as I think that um, an ordinary understanding of your unconscious is useful, I think the kind of positive understanding of the dimensions you speak of is useful and good too. What I'm also saying, though, is that not all dimensions are, I think, good or benign, um, just as not all things in life are, are, are good or benign. And to take this, you, we were saying earlier about 
the story that Eugene Thacker chose for the the Willows, uh, the cults, yeah, the Willows, and I, I think that's probably the strongest. Even though I didn't choose it, I think it's the strongest story in the collection. There's probably the most in that that story, and it, it is very much one where we see something happening in the world. It doesn't seem to be there for or because of us. It's not like a ghost that's coming to make contact and tell us something. It's almost something we've seen by mistake that is there for itself. And, the, you know, its supernatural manifestation for us is just the tip of an iceberg, the tiny bit of its complete reality that we see. And in the story where um, the, the hero and his, his friend have made this journey into um, the, this sort of, net, again, lakes, like the Elizabeth Jane Howard one, but these are lakes in Hungary or Austria and not, not in Norfolk. And they are on this island with these entities, these beings that exist in the willows. And not only are they terrified of them, they, they believe with good reason that they're in mortal danger, that these um, creatures will destroy them. And right through it, um, the, the teller of the story's friend, who seems to have a more intuitive understanding of what these things are, his sensibility connect, connects to their reality, saying, stop thinking of them. Stop trying to work this out. The more think you think of them, the more aware of you they will be and the greater danger we're in. And I think there is something to that. But, you know, that's like telling somebody to don't think about an elephant. You know? I know, so, I know, yeah. You can't, by its very nature, you it, it provokes mm -hmm. you to do that. And uh, I would say the undertext of that is that he's meant to. They're meant to. Mm. You don't think he is literally saying, close your eyes and it might run past you. Yeah, or it might drag you in the river and drown you. Yeah, hit somebody else, yeah. So, yeah, so I don't, you know, I see what you're saying, Tariq. I, in a way, though, is that not trying to tippy-toe around the supernatural? I, I remember reading in your introduction that, if I read you right, you were saying that in the end, it's all human-made systems made by humans. No, I, that wasn't quite what we made. Um, I, I think that the supernatural to be absolutely clear, does exist for itself. And that what it does is challenge human-made systems, but that even our understanding of the supernatural becomes a sort of comforting human system too. Yeah, that I would the, the actual object of experience, the thing that we're talking about out there, is there. And maybe we're misunderstanding it when we give it names like spirits or spectres, ghouls or whatever, or dimensions even but that there is something that we are talking about, but that is necessarily converted into human understandings just for us to converse meaningfully about it. But that doesn't mean that that is what it is. It's just the only sense we can get out of it. It's very interesting if you see the way the vocabulary around the supernatural has changed uh, and completely away from any kind of religious connotation whatsoever in our sort of mainstream rationalist culture. And it's the way the word paranormal, 
which was first coined by a Frenchman whose name I don't remember back at the turn of the 20th century. So if you say it's paranormal, that sanitizes it in a way, you know, that makes it sound like something you can put in a lab. And It's a mobile phone signal. I mean, you know, that one day that will become science and, you know, we won't have red faces discussing it. But I mean, I, that, 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 that's dilute and weak. The supernatural, as it is discussed in our collection, is something that the existence of, it, you know, it's acknowledged and taken seriously. You know, we don't pretend to know what that, that is, although we do think, not all of the people that, you know, provided stories, but I certainly, I should just speak for myself here, that there is so much that governs our lives that we're unaware of, that we don't see, that we don't know, that we take the existence of for granted, but that we couldn't tell you a single thing about. And I think the supernatural has real explanatory potential for things we encounter in life that we don't understand, that are otherwise mystifying for us, that we try other explanations and they fall short. Their explanatory potential just isn't complete enough. So I think the supernatural can help us understand life, but that doesn't mean that I think we can understand the supernatural. Well, I think this is something that has is has already and is going to be a strong current in our present 21st century, where a lot of 20th century assumptions are being questioned. And I'll never forget, way back in the early 90s, I, I was helping some people do a sociology textbook series, and the religion guy said, religion is going to be the major theme of the 21st century, for good or ill. And, and I have to say, he was right uh, in terms of, uh, you know, religious movements, all kinds of things going on. Uh, what I what I think is unfortunate is that you know I I live here I'm in Berkeley California and it's almost heresy if you mention religion the knee jerk reaction is fundamentalists bad you know they simply do not let that into their universe and it doesn't even have to be organized religion or denomination or anything it's just no, that's no good. That's the enemy of science. It's the enemy of rationality. We must gird ourselves against it. And frankly, part of what's going on in my country right now is not only crazies on one side, but people on the other side who immediately extend that label to any, you know, practicing religious person. They accord them you know, no respect whatsoever. And I'm not a practicing religious person at all, but it upsets me to see this division playing out so spectacularly in politics. Yeah, I mean, Victoria, it's, uh, what you're talking about is probably more overt in the States, but there's um, weaker versions of it in, in the United Kingdom. And I think that's because if you go into politics, you have to shop for a complete package. And if you're, I suppose, a liberal or on the left, religion isn't really part of that package. You know, a reductionist or scientific worldview is. And so what are you doing with 
left liberal politics and a belief in God. There's an incongruity there. It's almost not allowed. You've chosen your side. These are the boxes you must tick. And you cannot diverge from any of them in a confusing or nuanced way. And similarly, on the right, if you, you know, believe in God, what are you doing not believing in guns, say, or, I don't know, free healthcare or whatever? So the, the two packages that you have to buy into are very absolutist and aren't kind to anybody looking to diverge from them. What I find really worrying about what you're saying is that religious instincts are an enormous part of a lot of people's ordinary daily understanding of phenomena in the world and themselves and their relationships and even things like personal identity, the soul, the irreducibility of soulfulness, unus, that kind of thing. And if you are, as you know, the far right right loves to um, demonize all of us, I use us in this all very loose, inclusive sense, but a, a, a liberal elite that looks down on the views of ordinary people, their own folk wisdom, then you really couldn't do better to reinforce that accusation than by saying religion, I shit on it and all its forms, because people feel like you're going against them. And that's why so many, many, many people, young people and older people too, have started developing new religions and spiritual practices based on science fiction and fantasy. You know, there's, there are all the Lovecraft, H.P. Lovecraft cults. There are the people around Star Trek. There are the Tolkien people who, and even, there's even, there was, I don't know if it's still going on, a religion around Twilight where young people, I think, mostly would practice bibliomancy. You know, every morning they'd open one of the four volumes of the series and read out and pick a member of the vampire family as their personal god. I mean, this is far, far more prevalent than you could even imagine because there's this empty void now where religion, which was traditional religion, was the traditional stepstone to the supernatural. But it's gotten a little stale for many, many people. So they've developed these new religions and new spiritual practices. And Scientology is a classic example because it's based on uh, the idea of extraterrestrial beings coming to Earth 5,000 years ago and so on and so on. The extreme form now, of course, is QAnon, where believers in QAnon have basically developed a sci-fi fantasy about what that explains the world. So, so I'm just saying, you know, that my sociologist back in the 90s was very prescient about all the different forms that the deep need for spiritual practice and some kind of uh, identification with, uh, an, you know, that other realm and territory has been provoked and, and wants fulfillment. I think even, um, you know, the darkest and blackest horror lifts the heart of the religious because they think, well, if the devil's out there, God has to be as well. That a lot of people's spiritual adumbrations are confirmed in supernatural stories. As you say, religion is a path to the supernatural because the, su the supernatural validates all these 
things they think could be the case in their normal lives, that people have, a, you know, spiritual essences or whatever. And the existence of ghosts, immaterial beings, is, you know, is, I think, deeply connected with the religious instincts, which is why the attack on the supernatural was always at the same time, I think, an attack on the religious sensibility. And I agree with you that every time it's suppressed, it comes up again and, you know, re recharges itself in some other formal manifestation. But as you were talking about these different cults or relig religious groupings around different books and authors and things, I can't imagine one ever, ever forming around Fanu or, or in any of his stories. There just isn't the, the room for a religious system or a, a, any possibility for anything. No, you have to have a kind of a consistent narrative story. But, you know, Tariq, I think of something I want to recommend to you, one of your countrymen, Christopher Partridge. Do you know his work? Uh, called, it's two-volume work called The Reenchantment of the World. And Christopher goes into great detail about what he calls popular occulture. Yeah, I don't know it. The whole phenomenon of the occult in, as it manifests in popular culture. I think you'd, you'd really enjoy it. No, I'd love to. I'm writing at the moment a... Will, I'm going back to the occult, the supernatural. And at the moment, I'm writing a sort of Wiltshire true detective based about a series of occult disappearances that have occurred here with the suggestion that it might be posh people stealing poor people's children. And it's the first book I've ever written in the first person. Uh, this is a detective story, but with um, leaning heavily into the occult. So, yeah, I'll happily search out Christopher Partridge's as background supporter reading. <laughs> the current project I'm writing, it's called Thrilling, and it's a book about compulsive reading and the psychological dynamics of compulsive reading. And my own particular compulsive reading of late, which has been thrillers and a certain kind of um, detective novels. And I'm, I'm, uh, but I hate murder mysteries. I only like them if they're adventure and open ended and. I could care less about train schedules. <laughs> you know, all that kind of stuff drives me, drives me wild. But what I'm really interested in is, and this goes back to this Chesterton idea of the story, why, you know, as a kind of an equal channel to literary works, Anna Karenina and so on. And there's, there's something about the folktale way that story with a capital S is set up that compels us, you know, I was giving that example about Kafka in the drive-in movie, uh, but it compels us to read another one. And I guess what I'm coming to is this notion that paradoxically, thrillers calm us down, that it's a form of anxiety management, but it's not anxiety mastery. And there's a really important distinction between those two states so it's been an interesting experience writing this book. I have to get it in by May 1st, so I'm a little anxious about that. But the pandemic has really raised everything to a new level in terms of anxiety management, hasn't it? And I found myself drilling down even more on my thriller writers uh, than I had even previously. So there are a lot of questions that get raised, and 
I'm also dealing with the fact that the five authors I'm really concentrating on are all male and they're all white. And they're all, you know, probably the most famous writers in their particular niche. So why haven't I taken up some of the other ones? And why is it that I tend to gravitate toward these writers? And I, I'm, still, I'm still struggling with all of that. Which I imagine it's because they speak to you directly. I mean, when you made your point earlier about the two different types of entertainment, the kind that is a companion to you in life that keeps you going, and then the other that allows you to gain some sort of insights into what's happening to you. I was the musical example, Noel Coward. There's something potent about cheap music. And I thought there are just some things you can convey, some emotions that can only come in the form of a disposable throwaway melody and others that you need a concept album or an orchestra to get to the bottom of. The thrillers, I think what it is, is that you get a world put out of order, a murder, uh, a crime, and by the end, just like they told you in Shakespeare class, order is restored. You know, whether it is in real life or not, who cares? You know, it's this very uh, satisfying trip through adventure and all kinds of things. And uh, I made the mistake of reading a book thinking that that was what I was going to get from it as a thriller. Might have been about five years ago, a little depressed for a little while. And almost automatically, involuntarily, I found that I went to... um read a bit of Conan Doyle, Sherlock Holmes stories, not unthinkingly, not really knowing why. And from there, I, for the first time in my life, it's crazy because I've seen the film a thousand times, I got Peter Benchley's Jaws and just steamed all the way through it, thinking I was getting exactly what you're talking about from a thriller, but then found it was a totally different kind of book altogether at the end. And the shark disappears to the bottom and isn't blown up. So it, it, it did the opposite of what I was, I was looking for. I get curious when I read a, something that it seems to be a... Yeah. What were they doing? And then Packaging twists, it. Twists at the end. And yeah. Order, uh, order was not restored. Order was Terror not was restored. Really? Of the day, yeah. <laughs> it was awful. Yeah. I very much enjoyed talking to you, Victoria, and look forward Likewise. to finishing finishing Neighbor George, and also reading this next book that you're engaged in the closing stages of. Well, uh, it's lovely to meet you. Let me know really if you was. need to spend any more time. I carry on our, our conversations in some form. No, I, would love, I would love to do that. Thank you to Tarek and Victoria for their discussion, and thank you for listening to the MIT Press Podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, make sure you subscribe, And if you'd like to support us, please head over to Apple and give us a five-star review. I'd also like to say thank you to Samantha Doyle, who mixes and edits the podcast, and Kristen Galineau, who produced the soundtrack.